Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Anyway, we got to get into our study. On your notes, we need to be, I believe, in verse 10 of Romans 9. Okay, so now we're going to go to the second illustration that Paul is going to give about understanding what happened to Israel and explaining to the arguer, to the what we call in theology the interlocutor of who's arguing with Paul. So Paul's doing this argumentation. The first the first thing he has said is that not all, not all Israel is Israel. He separates the remnant of Israel versus the non-remnant of Israel. And then he's given an illustration of uh, Yitzhak or Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, they both had the same father, but one ends up getting the Abrahamic covenant going through him and the other one does not. Paul's point, just to refresh our minds, is this. He is arguing with a Jewish interlocutor, a Jewish arguer, who is making the case of rabbinic Judaism, which says that just because you're a Jew, it makes you automatically saved, and if you follow the law, it makes you saved as well. So he had a twofold way of salvation under rabbinic Judaism. He is arguing with someone like that because the arguer is making the point to Paul, well... Because we didn't see all Israel get saved, because in his mind all Israel should be saved because they're all descendants of Abraham and keep the law, and though only the Jews are saved, therefore we don't see the nation saved. And so the, the arguer is saying, Paul, that it appears that God's promises have failed to Israel. And Paul is now retorting back saying, you don't understand. Salvation has never been about your genealogy, nor about law-keeping. Salvation has always been by faith. And that's what his argument through Romans 1-8 through 8 has always been. And then he is now given these illustrations of, look, I'll show you how heredity doesn't work for you. It didn't work for Ishmael, because the promises of the Abrahamic covenant went through Yitzhak or Isaac. And again, Paul is not illustrating with a salvation of the two boys of Ishmael and Isaac. He is given an illustration that heredity does not mean a hill of beans to God in terms of blessing. Now, heredity, being a Jew, might put you into the scope of blessing, but it doesn't guarantee salvation. It doesn't guarantee blessings and those eternal rewards either. And now he moves from Isaac to Ishmael, and so he moves to another thing of Jacob and Esau. Now, in this illustration, it is obvious what Paul is hearing from the arguer, the Jewish arguer. The Jewish arguer says, fine, I get what you're saying about Ishmael and Isaac. They had the same daddy. But what about... Jacob and Esau, who had the same mom and same dad. And that's how Paul comes back and then explains the difference. And that's what we're going to study. So let's look in verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, verse 11, 
For the children not yet being born, having done any good, nor having done any good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay, so now as he's moving into this and, and talking, he's going to talk about Jacob and Esau, what Paul is in effect saying, if you look at verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that purpose of, of God according to election might stand. He's referring to Jacob and Esau. And he's quoting, the quote is coming from Genesis 25. Okay, that's, that's in verse 11, that's a quote from Genesis 25. And in Genesis 25, a prediction is made about the two boys. And the prediction is that the older will serve the younger. It is obvious after this boy, these boys are born that, that Moses is describing a prophecy not of individuals, but of the nations of the Edomites who are descendants from Esau and the Jews who are descendants from Jacob. Same parents, but two different lineages. And he is saying in effect that before the boys were born, God made a decision that the Abrahamic covenant would go through one boy, the younger one. Now, that's a decision not of salvation, but is a decision on corporate Israel. Because Moses is referring to a nation, not individuals. It's a nationalistic prophecy. And the, the other affirmation of this being a nationalistic prophecy comes from Malachi chapter 1. Because Malachi will refer to the uh, Edomites or the, the descendants of Esau and to the Jews, the descendants of Jacob. And that's where the term Jacob I love, Esau I hated comes from. It comes from Malachi. It's a nationalistic idea. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, Let's deal with Israel, because that's a, that's a, the topic of conversation. He's saying, look, I've already explained to you why Israel was chosen. They were chosen to receive special blessings and eventually bring the Messiah. And he, he enumerates eight blessings that Israel gets from being a chosen nation. Just because Israel is a chosen nation doesn't ensure individual Jewish salvation. It just means the nation is the carrier of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, living in that nation, even if you were an unbeliever, you would have an overflow of blessings because you're in the scope of the covenant. Right? Because you're living in the land. If the land was fertile and the land was being blessed by God, even if you were an unbelieving Jew, would you not be blessed by that? Yes. So, your proximity to the Jews would get you some blessing, but it doesn't ensure salvation. And so Paul now is making the point to the, the Jewish arguer that, look, God chose this nation for no other reason than to carry the blessings. And my point is, Paul is saying to the interlocutor, this is why you see a division happening in the country. Because, yes, they carry the Abrahamic covenant, but it, but this is why the majority of Jews are not saved. It doesn't ensure salvation. 
And the guy is coming from a rabbinic background saying, wait a second, we have been taught for centuries, for centuries, that we are automatically saved because of our heritage. So this is the problem. And he's trying to show, look, it, I, it doesn't matter what your heritage is. You could be from the patriarchs, for goodness sake, and it's not going to ensure your salvation. So heritage doesn't make a hill of beans. Let's continue on. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Again, this is a nationalistic passage. So anytime a Calvinist gets a hold of this passage, what they will do is turn it into individuals. And I'm telling you, based on Malachi 1, Moses' Genesis 25, you cannot make this about individuals. It is about nations. And the older shall serve the younger. Tell me this. You guys ever read the story of Jacob and Esau? Tell me when Esau served Jacob. Never. You won't find it in the biblical record. It doesn't come true in the life of the individuals. In fact, Jacob is totally afraid of his brother. He calls my, his brother, his older brother, Esau, my Lord. When they meet up again, he's so terrified of him because he thinks what Esau's going to do is pound him. So because it never happened in the life of the boys, it also gives way that this is talking about nations. And did that happen in biblical history? Yes. Will it happen in the future? Yes. But the, the, the nationalistic prophecies have nothing to do with individuals. Therefore, here's my question to you. If it has to do with nations, how can the Calvinists use this for individual salvation? What would you have to do in order to make this about salvation of individuals? What would you have to do? That's right. So a basic hermeneutical principle that we all need to understand is called the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if there's passages that are not understandable, what you were to do is look to other passages that comment on that passage. So when Paul quotes this in Romans, he's assuming you and I know Genesis 25 and Malachi chapter 1. That's why he quotes it. He quoted both passages. And because of the analogy of Scripture, it brings to light who he's referring to. Nations, not individuals. Therefore, in order for the Calvinists to win their argument, they have to ignore the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of Scripture, and they have to ignore what Moses said and the prophet Malachi said in order to make this work. Um, what's that called? Cherry-picking, maybe? Eisegesis? I'm telling you what. That's what the cults do. The cults love to isolate verses, not bring in the analogy of Scripture, and isolate the verse. And that's what I think you're seeing here. Okay, let's move on. It says, as it is written, he's quoting Malachi here, Malachi 1, 2 through 3, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now, we have established that that refers to nations, yes? Okay. Therefore, what does the saying mean? Is this an, if this is about individuals, which it's not, the Calvinists are going to take this as, see, 
God loved Jacob and saved Jacob, and God reprobated Esau because he hates him. So in their minds, eisegesis, pouring meaning into the text, love in their mind equates to salvation. Hatred in their minds refers to condemnation or damnation in the lake of fire. Okay? And they interpret the passage thus. But folks, Paul is using an Jewish idiom, a Hebraism, which he does constantly and the New Testament does constantly. The Hebraism doesn't mean that. And this is where the Jewish context has to come in. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, is a Hebraism. It comes from Malachi, but Jesus used the same Hebraism. Do you remember what he said? You must love me and what your family? Hate your family. Now, if I took it in the Calvinistic sense, uh, you better be hating your mom and dad because they're going to hell. Or whatever. However Calvinistic you want to interpret that. Is that what Messiah is talking about? No, it's a Hebraism. In that culture, the way they said preference is love versus hate. That's how you said preference. So when Jesus says you must love me and hate your father and mother, it refers to you must prefer me over your father and mother. Now, what does it mean to prefer him? I'm, I'm to prefer him over my own family. What does that mean? I prioritize the Messiah and his directives and my obedience to him over and above any loyalties to my own family. My loyalties to him supersede my own family. So I obey him rather than my children. I obey him rather than my spouse. I obey him rather than my grandparents or whatever. And it's not cause, it's not, he's not trying to say anarchy. He's just saying, you've got to put me first. That's the only way we're going to work here. Therefore, now go back to Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Preference. What is God saying? I prefer that the Abrahamic covenant go through Israel, Jacob, rather than Esau. That's all it's saying on a nationalistic level. It has nothing to do with salvation. Now, did he bless the Edomites? Yes. Did he bless Esau? Yes. Is Esau a believer? Yes. But it doesn't mean that the Edomites are believers. Or There could be a remnant of believers of the Edomites, and there could be a, a majority, like in Israel, that are not believers. Herod was an Edomite, right? So, the idea of nationhood, if this is not understood, you will totally misunderstand Romans 9. Now, let's go further. Everybody clear on that? That's all good? All good, no questions. Okay, because what I'm about to go into get a little tricky. Okay, so let's move to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now, why is Paul saying that? He just gave two illustrations, not talking about salvation. 
he's saying this because the interlocutor, the arguer, has fired back to Paul and said the following. That's not fair of God to do. In the interlocutor's mind, he is saying, you're telling me, Paul, that the rules of the game have changed. Because we have been taught by our rabbis for centuries, even after the Babylonian exile, that we are automatically saved based on heritage. Now you're telling me that God has switched the method and mode and means of salvation to faith. And that's not fair. And Paul said, Paul comes back and says, what? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So the guy, so you have, you have to go into the mindset of the, of the arguer. He's saying that God changed salvation. Or the means of it, or the way of getting saved. And Paul, you're telling that to us. Let me ask you this. Look, based on the Old Testament, all the interactions that you saw with the biblical characters with God, all through the Old Testament, into the Gospels, into the New. Has God ever changed the way anyone gets saved? No. It has always been based on faith alone. Now, the content of that faith might have changed with more information, more revelation. Obviously, there's ongoing revelation. So if you go back to the patriarch days, did they know a Messiah was coming? Yes. Did they have all the details like you and I do now? No. Did they know he's going to be born in Bethlehem? Not until Isaiah predicted it. You see what I'm saying? So they knew a coming one was coming to set everything right. They knew that. But the content would be added the more the prophets gave more information about the Messiah. So when I say the content changed, I mean that the content would be expanded through the ages. To the point where in the first century they had no excuse. They had all the prophecies of the Old Testament to make their decision on who Messiah was. Okay. That being the case, Paul said, it's not unfair. What are you talking about? And then he gives an illustration. For he says to Moses, why are you bringing Moses in on this? I want you to think by why he's bringing Moses in. There's a reason he's bringing Moses in now. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Why bring Moses in on this? Now, this is a quote, obviously, that God told to Moses. We're studying the Exodus. It comes at that period of time, right? All this is coming at that period of time. So this is all tying into what even we're studying with the Apostle Paul. So why bring up Moses specifically to a Jewish arguer? What is the other criteria in the Jewish mind about salvation? The law. Not only am I saved because of my heritage, but I'm saved because I keep the law of Moses. So Paul says, let's bring him up. Let's deal with Moses then. If you think you're saved by the law, look what he said to Moses. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Okay. How do you get mercy? 
How do you get compassion from God? Keeping the law? Is that what God's interaction with Moses was? No. When you read these passages and God dealing with Moses, he requires one thing to receive mercy. He requires faith. Faith gets you mercy. It is faith alone that gets you grace. It is faith alone that gets you the mercy that he's saying here. So what God, what, what Paul is trying to say is, look, you don't understand. The criteria was already set before the law was given. So remember what I'm, remember in Exodus, this statement comes at when? During the plagues. At that whole period of time. It's not given, this, this, this term is not given at Sinai after the law has been given. It was given to Moses before the law was given. And what do you think Paul is giving that jab for? What is he saying in essence? You fool. The requirement, the criteria for mercy was given to Moses before the, leaving the law was instituted. The law didn't even exist at that point in time. But mercy was given to Moses at that period of time. Because of faith of the lawgiver. Do you notice how the timing element of phrases and when they're said correspond to the arguments that Paul's making? He is absolutely brilliant what Paul is doing here. He's using a time-based argument that they can't argue with. You're right. That statement was made before the law was given. They can't argue. He's shutting their mouths. They don't know what to do with him. Paul is a genius, absolute genius for doing this. Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, continue on. Look what he says. So then, if it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, and what is wills and runs? That's the idea of working for salvation by keeping the law. So he's saying, so since it's by faith, it's not by works, but of God who shows mercy because the criteria is met. Now, now he goes to the negative. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. You see that last phrase? My name be declared in all the earth? I believe that's... Genesis, no, sorry, Exodus 9 or 4, somewhere in that neighborhood, before the law is given, is the point. That I'm going to do these plagues, Moses, for evangelism, so that the whole world will know me. And so I'm going to use Pharaoh in doing this. Now, let me ask you this. The Calvinist is interpreting Moses as being the elect, and Pharaoh as being the non-elect. That Moses is, uh, is the chosen one, and the reprobate is Pharaoh. And it's, a, it's in these black and white categories. And that's how they see it. But let's read the text about Pharaoh more specifically. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you for evangelism. Okay. 
If you read Exodus like we have been studying it the last year, what you will realize is that God keeps extending mercy and grace to Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh keep doing? Hardens his heart every time. And then it gets to the point where God starts hardening his heart. And when we talked about what hardening the heart is, it's not a violation of his will. It means that I'm going to strengthen you to accomplish what you want to accomplish, what you want to carry out against my people. I'm going to strengthen you so he doesn't buckle under the pressure of the plagues of being afraid. This idea of raised you up gives understanding not only to Exodus, but in the passage. I have raised you up means I have spared you. Which lends itself to when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart in order to spare him. Because at this point, I mean, honestly, if he would have saw plagues one and two, whatever, that would have been it for Pharaoh. He would have been done. And God could have wiped out Pharaoh right then and there. But he doesn't. He spares him. And he keeps strengthening Pharaoh to follow through. And so Paul is lending itself to understanding what happened in Exodus but also understanding that Calvinism is completely wrong because Pharaoh hardened his own heart and got himself in that position. And then it says that I may show my power in you. Yes, that's what happened. The more that God, or Pharaoh kept resisting and God strengthened his heart, God was able to show more power all the way to the power of splitting the Red Sea. And then obviously for evangelism purposes. So here's Paul's point. That Calvinists doesn't, they don't get. The criteria for mercy is faith. The criteria for hardening is rejection of truth. And God has the right to set the criteria. Now that's his choice. But He's telling the Jewish arguer, you have no right to argue with God when God sets the criteria. The criteria for salvation, but the criteria for hardening of heart and blinding. We're not done. Think about this. We've got to make an application to this, though. Who is Moses in this illustration? And who is Pharaoh in this illustration? He actually sucker punched the guy and the guy didn't even know it happened. He hit him with a, a right cross and the guy didn't even see it coming. Did you see it? Who does Pharaoh represent? Who does Moses represent? Not all of Israel is Israel. Go back to that. That set the tone. Not all of Israel is Israel. You have the two boys, uh, Ishmael and uh, Yitzhak. Not all of Israel is Israel. Yitzhak. You get to the other two sets of twins, Esau and Jacob. Not all of Israel is Israel. Jacob. Moses and Pharaoh. You following? 
You following? No. You're trying. Go back to not all of Israel is Israel. What's the current problem with Israel that the Apostle Paul is addressing? What's happened to the nation of Israel? Blindness has happened to them because they rejected the truth and so the majority of Israel is in in an unsaved state because they have rejected their Messiah and only a remnant of Jewish believers, not all of Israel is Israel, only a remnant of Jewish believers are actually believing currently in the Messiah at this point in time. What's that? You're on it. So Moses represents who? The remnant that you got it. Why does the remnant represent Moses? Because they go by the what? The criteria that God demands. You come to me by faith in my son. If you meet that criteria, you you receive mercy as Moses received mercy. Tell me who Pharaoh is, is my friends. Who is Pharaoh? He's woke. Yeah, he's J.D. Greer. He's uh, Max Licato. It's Joel Osteen. Who is Pharaoh? Yeah, the unbelieving who? Jews. He, he sucker punched them and he, they didn't see it coming. He said it's them who is like Pharaoh. It's the remnant that's like Moses and it's the non-remnant of Israel that is likened unto Pharaoh. But what did he say he did to Pharaoh? I spared you and raised you up for this so that my name would be scattered all through the earth. Now, wait a second. He did that with Pharaoh, did he? To show his power, right? So all the world would know who Yahweh is. How did he do that with Israel? How did he do that with Israel? He did the same thing that he did to Pharaoh with the non-believing element of Israel. I raised you up in these last days. Okay. You ready for this? He answers it. This is how the non-remnant is like Israel. This is chapter 11 of Romans, verse, I'm starting verse 1. No, no, verse 11, sorry. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. He's talking about the non-remnant. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So when they come in, it's going to even be better. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I, my, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. Talking about the Jews. For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see how they're like Pharaoh? Uh, let me continue on. He goes there for... Uh, verse 19. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief... Wait a second. He just said it. Because of what? 
unbelief, not because they weren't chosen, because of unbelief, talking about the non-remnant of Israel, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare uh, you either. You, you can come under uh, judgment because of that. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And then he continues on. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. So the point about in chapter 11 is he explains the Pharaoh aspect that how God is using the non-remnant to reach the Gentiles. He used Pharaoh to get the message out, the evangelism out from the plagues and the Red Sea. He is now using the non-remnant of Israel to reach out to the world, the world of the Gentiles, to bring them in. So, in essence, their unbelief has been to our benefit. Pharaoh's unbelief was to the world's benefit. And then he says they've been blinded in part. What does that mean? Now, people misunderstand what Paul is saying about this. He say, well, you think, well, the Jews have been partially blinded. He's not talking about individually partially blinded. He's saying they're blinded in part as a nation because there is a believing element still. There's a believing element, a remnant that, of Jews that still believe in the Messiah, and that's why they're not fully blinded. They're only partially blinded. Now, how do you get out of this? Well, he just said, he just said how do they got out of how how they got into it and how they get out of it. What did he say? Believe. If they will believe, they will be grafted back in. So it tells you, Paul is not talking about the Calvinistic idea of, of you know condemnation for the non-elect. He is saying, look, this is how you get in, this is how you get out, and you must meet the criteria. If you refuse to go with the criteria, then you will be blinded as a penalty. You will be hardened as a penalty. Now, let's bring it down to our level. That's nationalistic. Now we go to our level. The more a person rejects the truth, the harder their heart becomes and the blinding happens to them as a penalty for not meeting the criteria of faith. You just don't get to stay neutral with God. There is no neutrality. So when someone is delivered the truth and they keep rejecting it and rejecting it, they're going to go blind. Yep. Yes, and, and this is why Jesus went into parabolic mode. Right? Because parables hide the truth. And you know what? That was an act of grace. Why? Because the more truth they get, the harder their heart becomes, the more blinded, and the more condemnation they get. So he hides the truth by parables. Yes, you get that rest by meeting the criteria. 
And you won't get that rest if you don't. That rest is the shalom that you get with with God through the Messiah. So unbelievers don't have that rest. They don't have that shalom available to them, and they're 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 restless. They're always working, um, like the Jews were doing in that day. Okay. So now I think you can you can see where we bring it down to the bottom level. Okay. Any questions so far? We'll we will continue that. I know that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack, but. Yes, but only God would know that. We wouldn't know it, um, but God would know, hey, that guy's coming back. Pharaoh, it's it's extremely obvious that he wasn't coming back. And God makes that clear. You know, And you know how we know? God predicts it and says he's not going to turn. So when God says that, we know he's not coming back. And that that's the only way we know about Pharaoh. And then there's other characters in the Bible, like Judas. When Jesus says he was a devil from the beginning, that meant he was never coming back, never going to repent. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. And that's why you know you can't state that even about people currently today. You just wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Okay, clear as mud. Clear as mud. All right, we'll continue this. Let's pray and get you running, okay? Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.